From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. Since the beginning of the HIV epidemic, almost 80 million people have been infected with the virus. But by the end of last year, more than 27 million people living with HIV were accessing antiretroviral therapies, up from less than 8 million people in 2010. These treatments have changed the game for HIV patients and the management of the disease. The next two episodes of The Tea Room will take a look at the state of HIV treatment in Australia, some of the new antiretrovirals which are showing promise, and the clinical challenges still present when it comes to fighting this endemic disease. This episode we're joined by Professor Don Smith, a Senior Staff Specialist in HIV Medicine at the Albion Centre. Welcome to The Tea Room. Thank you. So I believe that the Albion Centre is the largest ambulatory HIV clinic in Australia. Could you tell us a little bit more about your day-to-day work and the patient groups that you most commonly see? Sure. I mean, the the clinic has been running for over 30 years now and was originally set up in response to the emerging AIDS epidemic uh, in Sydney back in the uh, 1980s. Uh, So we're a publicly funded free service uh, funded by the state government and targeting uh, people with HIV or at risk of HIV. So we've been mainly looking after, because of our location, gay men newly diagnosed with HIV. Although I have to say that that has um, moved a bit over the years to include other uh, individuals at risk. So you're talking of quite a few now international students who are coming from parts of Southeast Asia or South America uh, will commonly be seen, small number of heterosexuals as well, um, transgender. So it, it's becoming a bit more um, mainstreamed uh, to the general population, but still very much where the epidemic is. And what are the challenges now, or more historically, what have been the challenges with offering treatment to these patients? Because obviously, ideally, you would want some uh, an ongoing relationship, I'm guessing, with them, but I'm guessing that that's not always the case, just based on yep. uh, some of those patient groups that you've just described. Well, that's what we're aiming for. I mean, I've, I've often said to many of my patients that uh, you and I are going to be sitting here having conversations until one of us dies. Um, and that means that you're trying to engage someone for the rest of their life because HIV is going to be with them for the rest of their life and they need currently at least to maintain themselves on treatment um, way into the future, at least in the current thinking. And that means having to develop a relationship with people and constantly updating with, are you still on the best available treatment? Um, Are there any side effects from the treatment? And is there anything happening in your life that's going to get in the way of you being able to take a tablet every day for the rest of your life? Um, And do you have other health issues as you're aging? And is anyone else looking after those? So historically, the challenge, I suppose, was one of treatment hesitancy since we're in an environment today, we're all talking about vaccine hesitancy. So there's many parallels with our current viral outbreak and what was happening with HIV. You know, initially everyone was scared, there was no available treatment. 
Um, there was reluctance to get tested because of the stigma involved. And that then evolved into the treatment was not actually that great when it first started. And then a slow evolution of steady improvements on treatment, but often associated with quite significant toxicity. So much of the concerns were, do I really need to start these toxic drugs? Um, I'm getting side effects. Is it the drugs that are causing them? At, to the point now where virtually none of the um, things that people are talking to you about are actually related to the HIV or their treatment. Um, but it's usually age-related uh, issues that are now starting to, to come to the fore. And so when you say that now the conversations are really um, to do with the treatment, what do you find that they are most generally about? Well, initially, when someone's newly diagnosed, uh, I'm still surprised at the amount of uh, historical um, thoughts about what HIV really means to them. You know, does this mean I'm going to die? Does this mean I can't uh, carry on my job? I can't have a family? So there's a lot of education for people around about, no, if you take treatment properly, none of those things will work. Uh, sorry, none of those things will actually affect you. So then it's all about, well, what is the best available treatment? Can I get that? And fortunately here in Australia, usually the answer is yes, you can get what is considered to be the world's leading treatment. Uh, and then how do I stay healthy for the rest of my life? So once you've got somebody established in care, a lot of it's actually around about, well, what else in your life are you doing that you shouldn't be? You know, are you overweight? Is your blood pressure too high? Is your cholesterol too high? What about your mental health? So all of those other things start to sort of then come into the um, the, the total or totality of, of HIV treatments. And in terms of looking at that world-class treatment or, you know, the treatment that people would have access to in the ideal situation, could you tell us a little bit about that and studies that have looked at aiming to reflect the different demographics in real-life patients? Sure. I mean, the the world of research is not always exactly matched to the world in which we practice, and I think all doctors know that. And so the research is the perfect way of generating good quality data, but it then has to be interfaced with how do I use that information for the person in front of me. So early on in HIV treatments, we were willing to accept a really high level of toxicity because there was no other treatment and people were dying. As treatments improved, um, that switched into becoming less and less tolerant of those toxicities. And today, with much more effective treatments, it's actually, well, there's a number of them that seem to work really well. Do I need to be on all of them um, as I used to? So we've learned a lot unfortunately I have to say very slowly over the last uh, 20 years of rolling out treatment but we're still driven by the evidence base and, and what the data tells us and that's now suggesting that the traditional you need to have three drugs um, to treat HIV has been challenged in a number of good studies that are saying well if you've got two good drugs they're actually doing the job just as well. And I imagine that that is a lot easier for adherence as well, which is a problem for some patients. Look, it is. And in the old days, many of my patients would be taking something like 18 tablets a day. 
to suppress their HIV, and they did that because their other option was that the virus was going to rapidly damage their immune system, they'd develop AIDS and die. So they were willing to put up with that, seeing all their friends around them getting sick. But today, a lot of people are not seeing anyone getting sick. And in fact, it's, it's actually rare to see anyone develop AIDS. And certainly never happens if they're on treatment. So it's it's actually getting into how do we best decide what the best treatment is. Now, fortunately, most of the treatment options these days have been consolidated into combination tablets or what we call uh, single tablet regimens where up to three to four drugs are often mixed into one tablet taken once a day. So we've got a number of options uh, to play around with there. Um, more recently, though, some of the newer drugs, uh, particularly the second-generation integrase inhibitors, have been shown to be so potent that they're working almost like two drugs already. So you don't need the historical three-drug therapy with them to actually suppress the virus effectively. And I'm imagining that clinicians can have more confidence in this data. Is that your experience in terms of looking at this evidence behind switching to a two-drug regimen? Yeah, a lot of it was initially proof of concept where there was reluctance or hesitancy to sort of go with what seemed to be scaling back because most of us working in the HIV area were very fearful of the early days of if you didn't pick the right drugs, the patient may take them properly, but they weren't completely suppressing the virus and so variants were emerging. Um, and if that happened, then you'd develop drug resistance. So the fear of drug resistance was always potentially pushing us to actually give more than we really needed to. Um, now with um, some of the studies, such as the SALSA study that's come out recently, it's suggesting that we've now got more confidence that we don't need to push that hard on everyone. Uh, and in fact, with the newer combinations or the, the second generation integrase inhibitor drugs as part of a backbone, you really don't need all the others in the combination to get the same effect. So it's good to actually see further data that actually confirms what the preliminary data had been suggesting in a very nice, um, clean and well-selected clinical trial group. Uh, I mean, the SALSA study was a study that actually compared two drugs versus three drugs, but a range of different three drugs depending on which countries people were starting therapy and what was considered to be their standard treatment in those countries. And a lot of that has um, given us more confidence that the option works in a whole range of backgrounds. Um, now, the SALSA study was also really quite useful in that it wasn't your typical perfect clinical trial patients being recruited. So classically, you'll find most of the HIV treatments are all um, enrolling predominantly middle-aged white men as the study group. Um, and the data, while it comes out nice and clean, it's not really transposable to other uh, populations. So the SALSA study was actually almost 50-50 with the number of females, the number coming from more diverse populations, uh, such as um, different racial groups, was actually much broader as well. And the range of background treatments that it was compared against was also much more diverse. So it's really sort of given a much more real world feel to where the data is heading. And is that 
I just wanted to know, is that a rare thing for HIV research? Is a lot of it still rooted in the idea that the demographics are still the same uh, as the patient groups that were seen in the 80s? And that's why it hasn't shifted to what we know to be the face of HIV today? Look, it, it partly is that, but it's also partly the desire to get good quality data. Um, so, you know, particularly for companies that are trying to submit this data to get a licensing approval, they have to show huge levels of compliance with protocols, that everything is ideal, that the patients are consented, that all the data is done properly. So it's hugely costly to do. So classically, you'll find the companies will always go to sites that are good at recruiting and usually in first world countries. And that then reflects the populations that they're best at getting. So trying to, you know, everyone would like to say we want a broader spectrum of people going into clinical trials for the generability of it. But what you actually find out happening is that each time the study is set up and running, it's the same, you know, top rank, um, usually university academic clinics are recruiting, are approached. They have good quality data. They've got systems that can uh, recruit people. So they end up driving the data, but it's not reflective of what happens in the real world. And probably many of uh, the clinicians out there will know that actually things like recruiting women to studies is actually quite problematic and quite challenging to do. And so there's always been a desire to have more women involved in research uh, protocols. But usually what happens is that they're not there. So the SALSA study was actually really quite effective at actually targeting a much more diverse population, more reflective of where HIV is today. Ah, that's interesting. So back to switching to a two-drug regimen in clinical practice, on a day-to-day basis, what does that look like for clinicians like yourself and does it make the care that you can provide more streamlined for patients? It, it does and it doesn't because both the two and the three drug options are still encapsulated in a single pill uh, once a day, but it gives you more options and it also makes you think, well, I've been using traditionally three weaker drugs to achieve this wonderful effect of completely suppressing the virus, but I now know that I can achieve that with two drugs. And given that someone has to take those drugs for the rest of their life, why would you be giving someone that third drug that's not actually playing any clinical effect, uh, but potentially just adding to the burden of medication that they're having to consume? So that's really where it gives us sort of greater options, I suppose, to, to actually rethink the paradigm. Professor Don Smith, thank you for joining me. That's a pleasure. The Tea Room is brought to you by the reporters at the Medical Republic. Production assistance, the music and artwork for the show is produced by Victoria Nelson. Catch you next time.